0: Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm starting in Mark chapter 8 in this audio. We've just finished at the end of the last audio in Mark chapter 7. Jesus has just healed a deaf man by sticking his fingers in his ears, spitting on the deaf man's tongue. We talked about that interesting healing, which took place in the region of Decapolis, which is to the east of the Sea of Galilee. So we're starting in Mark 8, and in this audio we're going to talk about the feeding of the 4000 again in that decapolis area area in the wilderness somewhere over there and then we're going to take Jesus across the sea of Galilee for a brief visit to Magadan or Magdala where Mary Magdalene was supposedly from he's not going to stay there very long he's going to take back go back across the sea of Galilee north and east to Bethsaida that's Peter and Andrew's and Philip's hometown and then he's going to go from Bethsaida up to Caesarea Philippi, where Peter is going to confess that Jesus is the Christ. Now we're not going to get do all of that in this audio. We're just going to do the feeding of the four thousand and the trip to Magdala. So let's get started. Mark chapter eight, verses one through three. In those days, there was again a large crowd, and they had nothing to eat. He summoned the disciples and said to them, "I have compassion on the crowd because they've already stayed with me three days." And have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry, they will collapse on the way, and some of them have come a long distance. Now, this is the feeding of the 4,000 we're getting ready to talk about. We've already talked about the feeding of the 5,000, which happened a a good time before. uh, In the same area, it was near... Bethsaida on the northeastern shore of Galilee. Now we're a little bit further east and probably a little bit further south, but it's in the same general area, of the feeding of the 4,000. In just a little while, I'm going to give you a lot of differences of these feedings so we can keep them straight in our head. But now, first of all, we need to point out that the last verse in Mark chapter 7 gives Jesus' travel plans, or his his itinerary, I should say, Again, in Mark 7.31, Mark says this, Again, leaving the region of Tyre, he went by way of Sidon to the Sea of Galilee through the region of the Decapolis. There he had just dealt with a Syrophoenician woman, gave her crumbs from the table, so to speak, and then goes way north of the Sea of Galilee over into Decapolis. Now, Decapolis, there was both, we need to remember, that's an area where there are both Gentiles and Jews, a lot of Gentiles over there. He sat on a mountain. We, we look in the parallel passage in Hebrew fifteen, Matthew 15, which is the only parallel passage there is. This, this incident of the feeding of the 4,000 is only recorded in Mark and Matthew. It says in, Ma- in the parallel passages in Matthew 15:29, moving on from there, from Syrophoenicia, he went up, he passed along the Sea of Galilee, he went up on a mountain and sat there. Some people say it's the mountain that he normally sat. I don't think so. The Greek is ambiguous, but he went up on some mountain there and he waited for the people to come to him. Now, he is now in the area of, as I said, the Decapolis, which was under the rule of Herod Philip the Second, the Tetrarch. Philip the Tetrarch, that was the half brother of Herod Antipas, who was ruling Galilee. Well, Herod Antipas was hostile to Jesus because he murdered John the Baptist. He's not going to be happy about Jesus, and he was also sort of a bad man. John the Baptist criticized him not only for shacking up or stealing his other brother's wife Herodias but also for all the quote-unquote other evil things he had done and plus he had reason to not to fear Jesus because of John the Baptist. John the Baptist and Jesus are alive and Herod Anabas has murdered John the Baptist. So Jesus needs to stay out of Galilee so he goes way north, north of Galilee and goes over into the territory of Herod Philip II, the Tetrarch who was a, a better man, a good ruler as we know from secular accounts. So Jesus is sitting on a mountain over the, somewhere in the wilderness in Decapolis, and this was usual for Jesus to sit on a mountain. Why? Well, maybe for solitude, maybe to pray, maybe so the people could hear him better. Maybe so he would be seen as a new lawgiver. The old lawgiver Moses taught from mountain a mountain, so Jesus, the new lawgiver, is going to teach from a mountain too. So there's all kinds of reasons why he might have done it. Could have just taken just up there, resting after the long journey to wait for the multitude to come to him. Now, before we get to the feeding of 4,000, Matthew adds a detail here. Matthew 15, 30-31. And large crowds came to him, having with them the lame, the blind, the deformed, those unable to speak, and many others. They put them at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd was amazed when they saw those unable to speak, talking. The deformed restored, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they gave glory to the God of Israel." So all of this stuff is going to be going on before we actually get to the feeding. Mark doesn't mention this. Now there's something interesting here about the deformed. He's healing people that are deformed. Adam Clark says this includes those who lost a hand or a foot, because the Greek word kalos—that's the accusative, the nominative masculine—is kaloi. That word has been fully proved that those who had lost a fa- hand, uh, it has been fully proved that those who had lost a hand, a foot, etc., were termed kaloi by the Greeks. Kripke has shown from Hippocrates that the word was also used to signify those who had distorted or dislocated legs, knees, hands, etc. Mr. Wakefield is fully of opinion that it means here those who had lost a limb and brings an incontestable proof from Matthew 18:8 and 8, Mark 9, If thy hand caused thee to offend, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life without a limb, kulon, which is the same word, without a limb, than having by two hands to go away into hell. So that word Kulas, I guess, is the masculine singer of it. Kulas means without a limb. So if Jesus was healing people without a limb, that means he's creating things out of thin air. I mean, that's incredible miracles. That reminds me of Gary Habermas at Liberty University talking about uh healing testimony he had heard from a doctor that was written in a book where a boy's club foot was curled all up and it, and it just grew out into thin air and, and, and it was uh, uncurled and it was perfectly okay. It's not quite a creative miracle. I myself have seen my left leg grow out into thin air, which I guess is it's similar to this, a creative miracle. It was big enough to where I'll never forget it. And I've been tempted to backslide ever since, even when things were bad. I say, well, you know, God can do something like that. I'm, I'm just going to trust him to take care of things. So anyway, this, this is what Jesus is doing. He's doing all kinds of miracles. So that sets the stage for the feeding of the 4,000. Now, Jesus said, That he had compassion on the crowd because they stayed for three days and have nothing to eat. That means these people came out into the wilderness to hear Jesus not carrying any food. They didn't even think about it. They didn't care. Now, they must have carried water, but they didn't worry too much about food because they wanted to see Jesus, get healed, listen to his teaching, and so forth. From a long distance, Mark says, they came from a long way away. So we go now to Mark chapter 8 verse 4. His disciples answered him, where can anyone get enough bread here in this desolate place to feed these people? Now, some people say this shows an incredible lack of faith on the part of the disciples because they had just recently seen Jesus in a nearby area feed 5,000 people in the wilderness, and now they completely forgot it. Now, some of the options is how they could have forgotten that is because they were stupid and forgetful, according to the NIV study Bible, according to John Gill, they suggest that. Or as an option, an optional answer to that question, how could they forget it, is they were simply reflecting reality that they couldn't handle the job, and they were expecting Jesus to do it, which would mean they weren't showing a lack of faith. For Let's read it this way. The disciples said to him, said to Jesus, uh, you know, Jesus, we can't get enough bread in this place to fill a crowd. And so you're going to have to take over, just like you did last time. In that case, they're not showing lack of faith and stupidity. And so Jesus says, OK, I'll take over. How many loaves do you have? Seven and a few small fish. And then he multiplies them. I tend to think that's probably what happened. How could you forget after he just fed 5,000? How could they possibly forget that, that he had done that? And that how could they doubt then that he could do it again? We're 4,000, 1,000 less people, for that matter. All right, we'll go to Mark 8, chapter 6 through 10. Then he commanded the crowd to sit down on the ground, taking the seven loaves. He gave thanks, broke the loaves, and kept on giving them to his disciples to set before the people. So they served the loaves to the crowd. They also had a few small fish, and when he had blessed them, he said these were to be served as well. They ate and were filled. Then they collected seven large baskets of leftover pieces. About 4,000 men were there. He dismissed them and immediately got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. We'll talk about that trip to Dalmanutha in a little bit, but let's talk about this feeding of the 4,000. Now, I don't want to talk too much about it because I've already spent a lot of time talking about the feeding of the 5,000 in a previous audio. But So let's just briefly go through this. Why did he command the crowd to sit down on the ground? So they would be stationary. They wouldn't be wandering around. It'd be easier to serve them. It'd be easier to see them, to see who had been served and who had not been served. Also, you could count how many they were and so forth. And they gave thanks. They didn't bless the bread. You don't bless animate things in the Greek. You either bless God or you bless people. So they gave thanks, which means they were thanking God, which was a Jewish custom to pray before the meal. Then they all ate and were filled. They collected the leftover pieces, seven large baskets. And, of course, the application of this is you don't need a lot of material provision to do the work of God. If you're short of material provision, if you're doing God's work, He's going to miraculously multiply your means so that you can get the job done. You just need one day's worth at a time. That sort of sounds like manna in the wilderness. God will provide. We need to do the work of the Lord. Now, I'm going to show you in several ways how this feeding of the 4,000 is distinct from the feeding of the 5,000 parallel passage for that is in Matthew 14, the previous chapter in Matthew. Here are the differences. First of all, the time was different. Feeding of the 5,000 was before the trip up to Syrophoenicia and the trip back to Capernaum. The preceding and the following circumstances were different. The preceding circumstance for this was the the Syrophoenician woman story before the feeding of the 4,000. That was not so with the case with the feeding of the 5,000. And here, for the feeding of the 4,000, the crowd was three days without food. They were without food for less than a day for the feeding of the 5,000. The number of loaves that were broken for, for the 4,000 was seven. The number of loaves for the feeding of the 5,000 was five. The number of fish for the feeding of the 5,000 was two. The number of fish for the feeding of the 4,000 was, quote, unquote, a few. The number of baskets filled with fragments after it was over was 12 for the 5,000 and 7 for the 4,000. The kinds of baskets that were filled up were even distinct. In the Greek, kofinus, the basket for the 5,000, and spurus, the basket for the 4,000. And there was excitement to make Jesus king after the feeding of the 5,000, but in the case of the feeding of the 4,000, there's no excitement to make Jesus a political messiah, a king. There's no excitement mentioned at all. How did they have baskets in the wilderness? Well, several options. The apostles could have had them with them, probably not likely, but some of the crowd could have lent them to the apostles. Jews always carried baskets with them. They liked to memorialize the hay in the baskets. The the hay and the straw they had to carry in baskets in Egypt, so they would carry their baskets to memorialize that. They were afraid of being polluted by heathen's meat, so they would carry their provisions with them, uh, but they didn't in this case. But they did at least they they could have had baskets. Maybe not provided very well. It might not have stuffed to the brim, but they might have had baskets because they needed to carry stuff with them as they went. Sometimes, for example, hay to sleep on, for example. And there's always the option that each apostle used his own basket, whether they borrowed the basket or had their own, which means they picked up their leftovers, not everybody else in the crowd. And I tend to think that because four thousand people will have a lot of leftovers. It seems to me the leftovers wouldn't would be too much to put into seven baskets. All right, so now, as I said in Matthew and Mark, verse 10, he immediately got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Now, remember where he is now. He's on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee in the wilderness, which is mountainous over there in the Decapolis region. He now sails straight across the Sea of Galilee to Dalmanutha, which is also Magdala, other... Magdala, the NIV says that another name for Magadan is Magdala, the home of Mary Magdalene, according to the NIV Study Bible. Some people dispute that. It has another name, Dalmanutha. Mark here calls it Dalmanutha. Let me read to you some stuff from BibleAtlas.org, which I got from Bible Hub, a trusted source, I think. This name, Magadhan, this name appears only in Matthew 15:39. In Mark, it's Dalmanutha. In Matthew 15:39, it's Magadan. The, par- the parallel verse here, Matthew 15:39 says this, After dismissing the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Mark 8, verse 10 says, He got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. So we have a difference there between Magadan and Dal- Dalmanutha in our parallel passages from these two passages, continues BibleAtlas.org, it is reasonable to infer that the borders of Magadan and the parts of Dalmanutha were contiguous. We may perhaps gather from the na- narrative that they lay on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, that's across from Decapolis. After the feeding of the 4,000, Jesus says, and his disciples came to these parts. Okay. So we might look for Dalmanutha and Magadan, dot bibleatlas.org, somewhere south of the plain of Gennesaret at the foot of the western hills. So basically, it's you look at the map and it's about halfway between the north and southern tips of the Sea of Galilee on the western coast in that area. The area is probably Dalmanutha. Magadan is probably a city there. Now... I will say this, there's a map I'm looking at right now from Babylonus.org. They have two different cities, one called Magadan and one called Magdala, which is a possibility, or they might be the same place. But at any rate, we know the general area on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, south of Capernaum, not quite halfway down between the, north and the southern, northernmost and southernmost tips of the Sea of Galilee. That's where he is, Mark 8, chapter 11. And by the way, this is where Mary Magdalene was supposed to have, supposed to be from. The famous Mary Magdalene, who was the first person to see Jesus resurrected from the tomb, who's accused probably unjustly of being an ex-prostitute before she got became a believer. That's because Magdalene was famous for having a bunch of prostitutes around there. But, you know, you can't say everybody's a prostitute just because you're from that town. So I tend to think that Mary got a bad name out of that. But anyway, this is where Jesus is. Mark chapter 8, verse 11 The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, demanding of him a sign from heaven to test him. Now, Jesus has done plenty of miracles. I mean, creative miracles we just talked about across the shore in Decapolis. Creative miracles, and that's not enough for them. Healing the sick, the blind, the lame, casting out demons. Jesus refused to give them signs, as we'll see in a minute. Why? Because they were asking him for signs in order to test him. Instead of believing him, they were putting him to the test. Now, Jesus can put us to the test. No problem. But you don't put Jesus to the test. You don't get him to try to prove himself. Especially when you're not going to believe anyway, even if Jesus had done another messianic miracle. In fact, healing a leper was a messianic miracle. Healing a man born blind was a messianic miracle. He'd already done that. I think he'd, well, he might not have healed the man born blind yet. But he had healed a leper up in Capernaum, and there were Pharisees and Sadducees around to see that. So they were obviously asking out of unbelief, as the NLV study Bible says. So Jesus responds to that nonsense by saying this. Sighing deeply in his spirit, Mark 8, verses 12 and 13. But sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation demand a sign? I assure you, no sign will be given to this generation. Then he left them, got on board the boat again, and went to the other side. Now, Matthew 16 Continuing with the parallel here, adds an interesting detail. The Sadducees were with the Pharisees. Mark just mentions the Pharisees. Matthew mentions the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Two sects of Judaism who thoroughly hated each other. That would be like saying that in current American politics, Democrats and Republicans who thoroughly despise each other now, this is 2019, they despise their existence. Well... But now they got something they can unite on, hating Jesus. <laughs> it would be like, well, I don't know, but what? what it, but the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they got together on one thing. They hated Jesus, so they were both asking for a test. Of course, the Sadducees, very briefly, they were the political types. They were the kind of the religious liberals. They didn't believe in. They only believed in the Pentateuch. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Pharisees, of course, believed in all that. Sadducees tended to be more political and more. Agreeable to kowtow to the Romans. The Pharisees didn't like the Romans as much. So that's the general distinction between those two groups without getting into a lot of detail. Tend- Sadducees tended to be on the Sanhedrin. The-, the members of the Sanhedrin tended to be Sadducees. All right, so Mark does not talk too much about signs. He just says no signs going to be given to this generation. Matthew gives, gives us some more details here about signs. Well, if you go to Matthew 16, verses 2 to 3, Jesus said, answers them. When evening comes, you say it will be good weather because the sky is red. And in the morning, today will be stormy because the sky is red and threatening. You know how to read the appearance of the sky, but you can't read the signs of the times. Now going to the the weather signs, I looked up on a weather.com or somewhere on the internet about this, and apparently it's still true. They have a little poem that they use. Uh, that's still in effect today that explains this. Red sky at night is a shepherd's delight. Red sky in the morning is a shepherd's warning. In the morning, if you see black clouds and the sun bouncing off those black clouds and peeking around the black cl- clouds makes the sky red, that means you got a storm coming. But on the other hand, if the sky is red at night, and it doesn't matter where you are, whether you're in Palestine or somewhere else, typically that means it's going to be nice and calm the next day. I don't know the meteorological reasons for that, but that's the way it is. So these were easy signs to read, and Jesus is saying, look, you Pharisees can read those signs easy enough, but you can't read the signs of the times. In other words, the Messiah is here. I'm doing messianic miracles. I'm fulfilling Isaiah when he says, the dumb will speak, the deaf will hear, and the blind will see, and you can't read that. You can't understand that. He goes on in Matthew 16:4, An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Then he left them and went away. Now what's the sign of Jonah? Well, Jonah was in the water and he came back to life again. And Jesus, of course, is the same, except he's going down into the earth and he's going to come back again. Jesus said this at another place, too. In Matthew 12, verses 39 and 40, he said this, An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah for as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish 3 days and 3 nights so the son of man will be in the heart of the earth 3 days and 3 nights so there's your sign right there the resurrection of the dead that's the sign you guys are going to get deal with it so, this is a sign of Jonah it's also mentioned in a non-parallel passage in Luke 11:30 for just as Jonah became a sign to the people of and none of us so also the son of man will be to this generation so he's mentioned this several times to the Pharisees not only in this instance all right, now, a couple more points before we leave this incident of the Pharisees and Sadducees asking for a sign. Jesus says in Mark 8, verse 12, But sighing deeply in his spirit, he was really perturbed. He was distressed. He was human. He was distressed at the hardness of the Pharisees and Sadducees' heart. And then he notice he uses this phrase, This generation. Twice. Why does this generation demand a sign? No sign would be given to this generation. That's the same phrase he uses in Matthew 23 several times, many times. And that's the same phrase he uses in Matthew 24. And he says, this generation shall not pass away before all these things take place, namely the destruction of the temple and all of the intervening stuff in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse. That is a key phrase this generation, especially when you take an Orthodox Preterist interpretation of the Olivet Discourse such as I do. All right, so after this, Jesus and his disciples get back in the boat after that brief visit to Magadan, Magdala, Dalmanutha. Brief visit, and they get in the boat, and they go back north and east across the Sea of Galilee again to Bethsaida, also known as Bethsaida Julius, or Julius. And on the way, we see this event, which is described in Mark 8, verses 14 through 15. They had forgotten to take bread, and had only one loaf with them in the boat. Then he commanded them, "Watch out! Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod." Now I don't think Jesus knew that the disciples were concerned about that only one loaf of bread. It could be they only took one loaf because they figured, "We don't need bread. Jesus will make bread any time we want. He'll just, he'll just uh, reproduce it. So we'll just take one loaf and let him work off of that. He can feed four thousand. He can feed five thousand. He can feed many as he wants just with one loaf of bread." But I don't think Jesus even knew. That they were thinking about loaf. He was just, he was still thinking about this, <laughs> this incident where the Pharisees had, and the Sadducees had asked for a sign. After all the stuff, miracles he'd done, they still asking for a sign, still evincing, evidencing their horrible, hard hearts. So Jesus is, is telling them, now look out for these guys, don't listen to them. And, and the yeast of Herod Antipas, he he's, he's out there, he's going to kill us if he catches us, so be careful. But that's not the way the disciples take it. We read in verses 16 through 21, they were discussing among themselves that they did not have any bread. Aware of this, he said to them, why are you discussing that you do not have any bread? Now, at this point, when they started talking about not having any bread, that, then Jesus knew that they were talking about bread, obviously. And he said, Don't you understand and comprehend? Is your heart hardened? Do you have eyes and not see? And do you have ears and not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand? How many baskets full of pieces of bread did you collect? Twelve, they told him. When I broke the seven loaves for the four thousand, how many large baskets full of pieces of bread did you collect? Seven, they said. And he said to them, Don't you understand yet? In other words, what are you worried about bread for? Well, I just mentioned that they were thinking they could carry that bread and Jesus will multiply it. But on the other hand, that might not be so. It might be they were actually worried because they hadn't brought enough bread because Jesus is reminding them of the feeding of the 4,000 and 5,000. So maybe they weren't so sure after all. Maybe they were exhibiting a lack of faith. They were known for doing that, exhibiting lack of faith. Now let me see if I can summarize the possible attitudes of the disciples when we look at this The fact that they only took one loaf of bread with them. They could have carried one loaf in anticipation of Jesus multiplying it. As I previously mentioned, this is Jameson Fawcett and Brown's theory. They saw the 5,000 and 4,000 being fed, so they figured one loaf will do us. Here's a quote from Jameson Fawcett and Brown. The circumstance of the one loaf only remaining, as Webster and Wilkinson remarked, was more suggestive of their master's recent miracles than the entire absence of provisions. In other words, they did remember one loaf, the problem with, that if they had carried zero loaves, well, maybe that wouldn't show that they were relying on Jesus to multiply. But the fact that they had one loaf, it seems that that could indicate that they had perfect faith that Jesus would multiply that one loaf. But the problem with that theory is in verse 5 in Matthew chapter fifteen sixteen. 16 here, is it says that the disciples had forgotten to take bread. It doesn't sound like they... It, sound, it doesn't sound like they intentionally only took one loaf in order for Jesus to multiply it. So that theory is a little bit fishy if you ask me. Now there's another problem. If they remembered to take one loaf, why wouldn't they remember to take more? Well, here's some options as to why they had forgotten to take more than one loaf of bread. Maybe they were listening so closely to Jesus's teaching on the Pharisees and the Sadducees they just got distracted and forgot to put more bread in the boat. Or maybe Jesus said, the Pharisees and Sadducees are hot on our tail. We need to get out of here now, and they just didn't have time to go out and get some more bread. So basically we're left with two options here. One, option number one is they took one loaf with the expectation that Jesus would multiply it later and they had faith. Option two is they took only one loaf because they were in such a hurry to get out of there they negligently forgot to add any more loaves and therefore they, and so they were negligent. It wasn't because they had great faith that Jesus would multiply, it's just that they were negligent. And by the way, the fact that Jesus said, watch out for the Pharisees, this shows that Jesus didn't have a super spiritual attitude about his enemies. He didn't say, just pray and have faith your enemies can't touch you. No, he took natural means to avoid his enemies. If that's true as to why he left quickly, and at any rate, he said, watch out for them. That means use your natural means of being careful. And this is what happens when people get into the miraculous and watch Jesus do many things. A lot of times they think they don't have to to take natural means to to do things, can't do that, can't have that attitude. Now why were they discussing among themselves, we didn't bring any bread? Well, I think the obvious answer is they were responding to, to, responding to Jesus' comment about the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Some people speculate that they were worried because they didn't have enough to eat. Jesus had left them the job of providing necess- necessities to the disciples and they screwed it up. That's Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown's idea. I don't think so. I think they're Responding to what Jesus said about the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then they said, oh, the reason he's talking about yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees is because we didn't bring any bread. And this is one of those many examples where Jesus said, you have little faith. Just like he talked about people who did... In the Sermon on the Mount, he didn't believe that God could clothe them, just like he told the disciples when he came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, you have little faith, why can't you cast out the demons? Just like he told Peter when he sank after walking on the water for a while, do you have little faith? Jesus expected people to believe. Even a lot of faith in Jesus was just a little bit of faith to him. So he really expects a lot of faith out of us. Now, to, the disciples, in their defense, we need to point something out. Yeast was very rarely used among the Jews to refer to doctrine. This is Adam Clark quoting uh, Lightfoot on that. So it might be a little understandable the disciples didn't un- understand when Jesus was talking about the yeast of the Pharisees and the, and the uh, Sadducees. But Jesus nonetheless said, you have little faith, even though that was not a common use of the term yeast. Jesus was earlier tried by the stupidity of the Pharisees, now he's tried by the stupidity of the disciples. This is what most people say about this, not cutting them much slack. John Gill says, it's hard to believe that the disciples would think that he would warn them about so petty a subject. Jesus is discussing the great principles of the kingdom of God, and his disciples think he's talking about bread. The nine questions following each other in rapid succession in Mark 8 show how deeply he was hurt of this want of spiritual apprehension, so says Jameson Fawcett and Brown. Now, Jesus mentioned here in this verse the yeast of the Pharisees or the leaven of the Pharisees. Well, in the New Testament, leaven is usually a symbol of corruption. Not always, though. Not always. For example, in another situation, which is not a parallel passage, but another circumstance, a crowd of many thousands came together. This is Luke chapter 12, verse 1. So that they were trampling on one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So yeast in that Luke 12 passage, Luke 12 verse 1 passage, that yeast is hypocrisy, a bad thing. And then in 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8, your boasting is not good, Paul tells the Corinthians. Don't you know that a little yeast permeates the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old yeast. This is talking about the sin in the church. Therefore let us observe the feast, not with the old yeast or with the yeast of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So see, yeast is typically a bad thing. A little yeast leavens the whole lump of dough, Galatians five nine. I think that's a little bit of legalism, leavens the whole church. Uh, so, yeah, that's the general meaning of yeast. But remember, it does not always refer to corruption. Matthew 13.33, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into 50 pounds of flour until it spread through all of it. Talking about the spread of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is not a bad thing. That's a good thing. So anyway, they're going back to the shore in Matthew sixteen five, the disciples reached the other shore. That, and Mark eight twenty two says, they came to Bethsaida. So they came to Bethsaida. They brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. Now, Bethsaida is a fishing village on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's the home of Andrew and Simon Peter, the apostles, and also Philip, the apostle. They had moved to Capernaum, but that's where they grew up. Philip, the tetrarch, Philip Herod, Herod Philip II, the tetrarch, the good guy, over Perea on the, excuse me, not Perea, but uh, Aterea, the east of the Sea of Galilee. He rebuilt Bethsaida and renamed it Julius after Caesar Augustus Octavian's daughter, Julia, who was an interesting woman. She's very famous in secular history because she was so promiscuous she'd have sex with any man that breathed. And the emperor wasn't happy about it. But anyway, so we're going to call that Bethsaida Julius, or because the old name was Bethsaida, the new name was Julius. Now, Bethsaida is famous for not believing in God. Woe unto you, Bethsaida and Karzan, If the miracles had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah that had been done in you, they would have repented. I don't have the verse in front of me, but you know that verse where Bethsaida is, is Singled out along with another little village Carson, north of Capernaum there on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. These villages were singled out as proverbial cities of non-belief But at any rate while they were there a blind the the crowds brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him and a touching Jesus would pray for people and heal them, but a lot of his healings were done through touch for example the woman with the issue of blood For 12 years, that's how she was healed. There was another case, too. I don't recall the verse earlier in Mark that we read about. So this was a a common thing is is just to touch his garment, touch the tassel of his garment. But this time in Mark 8, verse 23, Jesus took the blind man by the hand and brought him out of the village. Spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? Now he took you by the hand because he's blind to lead him. Jesus showed two things by doing that. First of all, he showed his great humility. And he raised the man's confidence and expectation. He loved, you know, Jesus was a kindly man. He was kind and he was compassionate. And he brought him out of the village, apparently got him pr- private, just like he did with a deaf man that he healed when he stuck the two fingers in his ears and spit on his tongue, which was before he had crossed over to Magdala and come back again. Why did he go out of town? Well, here's some options. One, he, Jesus knew there would be a popular uproar proclaiming him to be the Messiah when he starts healing blind people. That's a pretty big miracle, you know. He was trying to, to not do that. Adam Clark comes up with an interesting idea. He was trying to show the people of Bethsaida they were unworthy of having a miracle done amongst them because in Matthew 11:21 he says this. And this is not parallel. This is another, another incident. Incident. Woe to you, Carson, woe to you, Bethsaida, for the miracles that were done in you had been done entirely Tyre and Sidon. They would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. That's the verse I was trying to quote earlier from memory. I messed it up a little bit. There, there's the verse, Matthew 11:21. And so Clark says, Bethsaida, you don't need to have a big miracle done in you. We're going to do it privately. Well, it could be. I think mainly because he just wanted to get away from all the hubbub of the crowd and concentrate on this man. Why did he spit? To aid in the healing, well, no, naturally, spit is not going to heal blindness, obviously, as John Gill says. Clark says it was to separate the eyelids of the blind man, because eyelids in blind people often found gum together in blind people, so he's just lubricating his eyes. Well, maybe, I think it could be, because the man couldn't see and spit. Back then, saliva had great healing properties, and, and so saliva was associated with healing and so jesus is trying to communicate to the blind man hey you're going to get healed i'm getting ready to heal you now he could have told him i guess he said i'm going to heal you but something physical like that is even better way to communicate i think that's my opinion again this is a little bit mysterious as to why he did these things so clark could be right i don't really think so though there's some other i mentioned the the instance of the deaf man being healed when jesus put fingers in his ears that was to communicate with him and spit on his tongue again to show to communicate to the deaf man that jesus was trying to heal him was going to heal him john 9 6 says this after he said these things he spit on the ground made some mud from the saliva and spread the mud on his eyes that was a different that was not a parallel passage a different healing but the idea is the same thing you know we got healing we're going to put mud but saliva is, is is something that heals or at least they thought it did and so he was accommodating himself to the common belief back then that saliva would heal again these are just speculations i there's good speculations as as i've heard mark 8:24. we move on to mark 8 verse 24 the blind man looked up and said i see people they look to me like trees walking so he was partially healed he was getting a little slight back it's fuzzy but he could see here's an interesting query how did the blind man know what trees look like well he, maybe he was not blind from birth Maybe he had bumped into trees before in his blindness, according to the NIV study Bible. But anyway, that's not a hard thing. It's interesting that the miracle is done gradually. And it illustrates to me that most miracles are a speeding up of natural processes. Most, for example, bones that are, not, that are deformed, they grow out. They just grow fast in a way that we would call supernatural. But still, it's, a, it's an outgrowth of a natural process. And likewise, gradually seeing better again is like your eyes are being formed again from when you were a, a little baby and your eyes gradually focus. And it's also interesting that Jesus didn't do the miracle instantly, which is kind of, I mean, it's not like Jesus wasn't, wasn't able to do big miracles. But for some reason, this was not done instantly. Again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes, and he saw distinctly. He was cured and could see everything clearly. I remember I've hearing people who are skeptical of divine healing say, well, see there, you know, you had to pray twice. Therefore, the first miracle wasn't a miracle, and therefore it was no good. The prayer was no good. Well, I mean, you know, Jesus, the Son of God, he prayed twice. I just let you do that with what you will. This second laying on of hands is unique in Jesus' ministry, the NIV Study Bible says. Now, why? I don't know why. He just kept praying until he got the job done. Good application there. You know, a lot of times, you know, you pray, and things don't happen as fast as we'd like them to happen. There were four recorded cases of Jesus healing the blind according to Jameson Fawcett and Blind Brown. And and they point out again, just as the NIV study Bible says, this is the only example recorded of a progressive cure. All the others were instantaneous. So I I just heard a story of a man that used to be in my house church about 10 years ago, maybe, maybe 12, 13 years ago. And while he was here, he had, I think, four open heart operations to put stents in. He was on death's door He was constantly having heart pains and having to go to the hospital. And I I didn't know, I didn't think he was going to last too much longer. And we prayed and we prayed and we prayed. I just saw him again after 10 years, for the first time in about 10 years. The doctor said, you don't need to come back to us anymore. The cardiologist, your heart's perfectly okay. Well, we prayed and the heart wasn't okay for a long time. But now it is gradual healing. And it's a little bit beyond the ordinary, so... I think that really, when it comes to healing, we need to quit worrying about how, or when, or how fast, or even if. Just pray. Just pray to God, please heal, heal me. And if you die, well, you're going to heaven. So just pray. Mark 8:26. And by the way, this is this is Mark 8 is the only place where we have this healing of the blind man who saw trees as men walking, uh, men as trees walking. This is the only place, no parallels. Mark 8 verse 26, then he, Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Why? To keep the man from broadcasting what Jesus had done. The village is apparently outside of Beseda. Near, near Bethsaida, but outside of it. Don't, don't go, why? To keep the man from broadcasting what Jesus has done. Again, as we've said many times before, Jesus didn't want to precipitate a crisis and bring Jesus' ministry to a premature end because people get all excited about this and say, King Jesus, King Jesus, here come the Romans, here come the Pharisees, here comes a disaster, the end of the ministry. The so-called messianic secret. Keep it secret for a while. Now at the end, Jesus was more open about it, but not now. Alright, next audio, we're going to start it. Mark chapter 8, verse 27, and we're going to talk about the trip from Bethsaida further north to the source of the Jordan River, Caesarea Philippi, where Philip is going to make his famous confession that Jesus is the Christ. You are the Messiah. Hope you enjoyed this audio.